The National Institutes of Health could be called Clinical Trials Are Us. It funds or conducts dozens of medical trials every year. Trials come with statutory requirements to report the results. Now the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has found some shortcomings in NIH reporting on clinical trials. For more, we turn to the HHS Assistant Regional Inspector General, Sylvie Witten. Ms. Witten, good to have you on. Thank you. Glad to be here. And just give us a sense of the scope. How many clinical trials are going on at a given time at NIH? Is it dozens, hundreds, thousands? More than dozens, probably hundreds and thousands. I mean, I don't have the data sitting in front of me, but there are a lot of clinical trials going on. Okay. And they do have a statutory reporting requirement. What exactly are they supposed to do under law? So there's actually two parts to the reporting requirements, and I'll briefly discuss both. So there's a submission requirement, which the responsible party is responsible for submitting the results of a clinical trial. And then there's also the posting of those results, which the National Institute of Health is responsible for. So federal law requires the responsible party of an applicable clinical trial to actually submit the results of its clinical trials to clinicaltrials.gov within one year of the earlier of the estimated or actual completion date. And the National Institute of Health also has policy that has that same one-year reporting time frame. The responsible party is designated by the actual sponsor of that clinical trial, and the responsible party has control over the data and has the right to publish the trial results. Right. So the designating is done by one of the institutes that's probably funding it, and then they would designate the recipient of a grant to do this study as the responsible party. Is that, in general, how it works? In general, that's how it works, yes. So then both federal law and NIH policy require that NIH ensure that the responsible party of any NIH-funded clinical trials comply with that submission requirement. And then once the responsible party has submitted the results, that's when NIH has the posting requirement. And NIH's National Library of Medicine staff are responsible for reviewing the clinical trial results that are submitted, looking for just any apparent errors or deficiencies or any inconsistencies And then once that's all worked through and the review is completed, the National Library of Medicine staff post the results to clinicaltrials.gov for the public to view. Right. The point of all of this exercise then is so ultimately anyone can see the results of the trial after it's been vetted and the report has been vetted by the correct NIH entity? Correct. And then NIH has the responsibility to post those results within 30 days of the submission of the results. So they've got 30 days to actually, once they get that clinical trial results information, to go through the review process and actually post the results on clinicaltrials.gov. So it sounds like this is the tail end of what should be some pretty good oversight of the clinical trials that they fund in the first place. Sure. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do that, what are the repercussions? Then nobody knows whatever happened or the public can't find out? Right. So having the results of clinical trials publicly available, regardless of whether it's a positive or negative result, really does improve the design of future research, the advancement and development of clinical interventions. And when the results are not submitted to clinicaltrials.gov in a timely manner, then that information about those results, including anything about adverse events or anything that occurred during the clinical trials, isn't available to healthcare providers, patients, or researchers. You know, that public front isn't there, which was what you were talking about earlier. Sure. 
We're speaking with Sylvie Witten. She's Assistant Regional Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And so you took a look at how well they report and just give us a sense of the methodology. How did you go about determining what you did find out? So the methodology for this audit was fairly simple. We basically compared the date that the results of the clinical trial should have been submitted to the date that they were actually submitted. And then we also determined whether NIH posted those clinical trial results to clinicaltrials.gov within 30 days of the submission date as required by law. And you looked across a pretty good cross-section of them, say from the different institute components? There were 72 what we'll call applicable clinical trials. So we were looking at those applicable clinical trials whose results should have been reported between 2019 and 2020. And so there were 72 that fell within the scope of our audit. And what did you discover? So one of the main findings was that the National Institute of Health did not ensure that the responsible parties submitted the results for 37 of those 72 clinical trials. The results of 12 clinical trials were submitted late, and the results of 25 clinical trials were not submitted. So more than a third of them that you looked at never did get submitted at all? Right. 25 out of those 72 were not submitted at all. Now, I will note that that was from this starting point of our audit, and that was the results. Now, towards the end of our audit, we went ahead and looked since time had lapsed to see if any of those 25 trials had ultimately submitted their results subsequent to our audit beginning. And there was actually one trial that the responsible party withdrew the results prior to recruiting participants, so they wouldn't have ultimately had to report results. And then there were 14 that actually did ultimately submit their reports, so they just submit their results. So they ended up just being late then. So we have a note in our report that kind of follows up on kind of what it looked like towards the end of our audit. Some of them did ultimately get submitted, which was good. Right, but there's 10 of them still in the ether somewhere then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 10 out of 72, that's a, in my view, that's a pretty good percentage. So what was the reasoning? What was the cause of these delays? And I guess you must have recommendations for how to get that out of the system so that they do everything on time. We did make some recommendations to NIH, and they were receptive to the recommendations. There were some challenges with some of the responsible parties and the interface with clinicaltrials.gov and just getting results submitted. There were some challenges there, so they're working through some of that. You know, we basically also recommended that NIH improve its procedures to ensure that the responsible parties comply with these results take enforcement action against any of the responsible parties that are late or don't submit their results, and then, like I mentioned, work with the responsible parties to understand those challenges that they were having with submitting their results and um, implement procedures that will address those challenges. And NIH was receptive to our recommendations. They actually concurred with them and described some actions that they were already taking based on conversations with us during our audit and things like that actions that they were already taking or that they plan to take to address these recommendations and try to ensure that future reporting of results complies more with the law than it showed during our audit. Sure. And the ones that were significantly late, did they tend to cluster around, say, one responsible party or a couple of responsible parties, or were they across the board? Um, I don't have that information sitting in front of me for the specific individual trials that we showed were late. Going forward, then, will you do this again? Will you look at, say, another year period to see if they've actually made those improvements? Um, I don't know whether there will be a follow-up audit to this, but I do think we will probably propose some future work that still looks at clinical trials. 
Yeah, because that's pretty germane to so much of the spending at NIH, isn't it? It is. And by the way, which region are you Assistant Inspector General for? Region 6, which is in Texas, and I'm actually in our, our regional offices in Dallas, Texas, and I'm actually stationed in Austin, Texas. That's right. I should have remembered that from the last time you were on. Well, it's good to have you back this time. Sylvie Witten is Assistant Regional Inspector General at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with the link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 